Morning, everybody. From me. It's really good to see you. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Meg. I'm youth pastor here. Uh, I won't make any jokes about that one today. Um, could we have the PowerPoint up, please, uh, David, if we can? Thank you very much. Um, when you asked me about preaching on this passage today, I found it quite interesting, actually, because um, the last time I preached, which was some time ago, we were back in earlier chapters in Samuel, and I ended up talking about the ark uh, going into captivity um, and disappearing. So you remember the story about how they, they captured the ark? So they treat the ark of God like it's some lucky talisman. Yeah, so they, they're fighting against the Philistines and they know that they need God on their side, but they get this great idea. They're going to take the ark out in front of them and then it's going to do all of the things that he did for their ancestors years ago and it's going to defeat their enemies. Uh, and actually, they end up get a right kick in off the Philistines and it all goes pear-shaped. The ark gets captured and then disappears off into Philistine territory. Yeah? all remember the story and it's great fun because because wherever it goes they set it up in the temple uh, of Dagon uh, and the ark's in there and they come back in in the morning and there's Dagon falling flat on his face in front of the ark so like any bright sparks would do they pick him up and stand him up again as their god and put him back where he was before so just to make sure that they got the message the following morning when they come in He's fallen over again, but this time his head and his hands have smashed off and his head's lying on the threshold of the, the temple. And God's just going, yeah, we'll, we'll see who's God here. And then the all kinds of plagues break out and they've got tumours and rats and all kinds of things. Yeah, it's great. Don't you love the Bible? It's why I like being a youth pastor. Uh, when a couple of years in here, I, I realised that the kids were struggling to read the Bible really well, so we did a whole series of things on a Sunday morning called Horrible Bible Stories, like horrible history things. We got all the juicy bits out of it, and there's so much in there, isn't it? Isn't it good fun? Don't you just think? Yeah. If you ever want a good story, the Bible's a great place to go. So anyway... So what do they do? What do they do with the ark then? So they go, well, this isn't working, is it? Let's send it somewhere else. Which is always a good thing to do when plagues and, and, and things are breaking out and you think it might be your fault, you palm off the thing that caused the problem to somewhere else. But wherever they sent it, the same thing happened again. And so eventually they asked their diviners, what's going to go on? What can we do about this ark? How, how are we going to deal with it? And they said, there's nothing to be done if it's... If it's the, the God of the Hebrews who's done all these miracles before, there's nothing for it. We're just going to have to get rid of it. But we're not quite sure it is God, their God, uh, or is it just circumstantial? Because, of course, when you send gold overlaid boxes around different people and plagues break out and rats appear and tumours happen on people's bodies, in multiple places, wherever you send the thing, it could just be coincidence. Have you noticed that? Yeah, it could, it could. It might be. But we'll check this out. We'll see if this really is the God of the Hebrews that's doing it. So what we're going to do, is going to build a new cart. We're going to put the ark on it. We're going to get these two, uh, these two cows that are just carved that would never leave their calves and that kind of thing. We're going to set it and we're going to see what happens. So they set it on a new cart and they send it back and the oxen go lowing all the way back to Kiriath-Jerim. Uh, uh, in front of the Israelites. Everybody remember this story? You with me so far? Yeah? It's, it's, it's great, because the bit that happens next is great. So, the ark of God that's disappeared for a while and been causing all these problems um, comes back to the men of Kiriath-Jerim 
And they go, oh, I'll tell you what, let's just make sure that everything's still in it. So, yeah, let's just have a quick check. Because you never know, this God who caught plagues and tumours uh, amongst his enemies and rats and all of that kind of thing, he might not be able to look after his own box really very well. So we better just check that they haven't nicked anything out of it. So we make sure that Aaron's staff's still in there. We make sure the pot of manna's still in there. We make sure that the law is still in there. So let's just have a look. So they open the box and they get one of those Raiders of the Lost Ark moments. Yeah? Where thousands of them die. And actually God's judgment on the Israelites is more severe than it was on the Philistines that had nicked it in the first place. Notice that? God's judgment on the Israelites for messing around with the Ark of the Covenant is more severe than it was on the Philistines. Because actually God expects a degree of reverence and understanding among his people that outstrips that that he might expect from just anybody who didn't know how to approach him with reverence and awe. So anyway, they slaughter, he ends up slaughtering there are these people from Kiriath-Jerim. So what do these people do? They send it somewhere else as well. Because <laughs> it's a scary thing when people start dying around God's presence. So that they send the ark off and they, it goes to the house of Abinadab up on the hill. Which hill? I'm not quite sure. But it's up on a hill. It's repeated several times. Whenever Abinadab's house is mentioned, it's mentioned as being up on the hill. So it's somewhere on a high place, and they send it there, and the ark then sits there for 20 years. 20 years between the ark coming back to the Israelites and David having this brilliant idea of bringing it uh, back to Jerusalem. So it's been a 20-year period. That's quite important. A lot happens in 20 years. Have you noticed that? A lot happens. Abby, how old are you now? Are you still 18 or are you 19 now? 19. You see? See, if Abby had been born at the, the point that the ark went back to Abinadab's house, that she'd have known nothing about it now, would she? You have a whole generation of young adults who know nothing really about the ark of God because it's not featured anywhere in the life of God's people in her lifetime. Now, those that have been around her parents might have known about the ark and what it was meant to be and how it was meant to be treated and that kind of thing. But Abby's generation would know nothing about it. Sorry, Abby, to pick on you, by the way, but, you know, I enjoy it, really. So, So, and it's important to think about that because, actually, it's a long period of time where David then suddenly decides to to bring this thing back. Uh, And what's he doing? What's he doing? Why is he doing it? The cynical have suggested that, of course, what David's really doing by bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to, um, to Jerusalem is that he's consolidating both his administrative, um, his uh, spiritual, and his, his kind of kingly exercise of, of, of the, 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 the whole reign that he's established by, you know, the spiritual, the administrative and the political focus of everything is now in Jerusalem where David is uh, enthroned as king. And that's what he's doing. It's just one of those exercises. It's really easy to focus everybody around the same place and that kind of thing. But I think David's doing 
more than that, and we'll have a think about it. Because David, of course, was a man after God's own heart. It was a phrase that's used of him a number of times in the scripture. David was a man after God's own heart. And he's also, actually, interesting, at this point of time, he's the only guy who's filled with the Holy Spirit. David is the only person who's filled with the Holy Spirit at this time. We forget about that, don't we? Everybody else had to make do with the presence of God as on the ark, but actually David's the only one who's filled with the Holy Spirit. So he just might have a little bit more wisdom about what's going on than some other people would. But can you read that? Um, uh, disclaimer here, I'm colorblind, which means I can't see some of the things that you can, but actually sometimes I can see things that you can't, which is really helpful. Um, but I do have a habit of drawing things in different colors, and then when you put them up on the screen, can you read it? No, it says the dancing king, okay? So what we're going to think about this morning is, what's David actually doing here, and actually what can we learn about our worship and our reverence for God from some of the things that happen in this passage. The first thing is that, can you read that? No? Half of it. You can read half of it. It says unprepared, okay? It's unprepared. So, somebody tell me, by the way, being a youth pastor, I'm allowed to ask you questions and expect you to respond to them, okay? Normal preachers aren't allowed to do that, but there's some youth pastors get a special... When I ask a question, it's not rhetorical. Okay, I expect some audience participation. So, so somebody tell me um, how David uh, went to fetch the ark back. What did he do? In this passage, you've just read it. Come on, if you weren't paying attention. See, you can't zone out when the reading's on, okay? Because you miss all the important bits. So, how did David actually physically bring the ark back? Hands up. Huh? No, 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 no. How did he carry the ark? On a cart. What kind of cart? Specifically told, a new cart. Who puts the ark of God on new carts? David did. Who else put the ark of God on new carts? The Philistines. So what's David doing here? He's not thought or sought the Lord about the appropriate way of dealing with the manifestation of God's physical presence, essentially, at this time in history, kind of God's physical, if God ever had a throne, this was the place. God sat in throne between the cherubim on the top of the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. Why were they so interested in transporting the Ark around? Because they knew that actually, in this location, the presence of God was physically manifest. But he doesn't, David doesn't seek God as to the right way to deal with him in this. He assumes that he can do what anybody else would do. And it's a really important point for us to think about, actually. How do we worship God? How does God want to be approached? That kind of thing. We can't take our lead from anybody else who says how we do things in the world. We need to think about what God wants for himself and not approach it as if we were just anybody. So they stick the Ark of God on this new cart and then start celebrating and dancing and charging down the road to take it back to Jerusalem and everything's really happy until they get to the threshing floor of Nacon. 
A lot happens on threshing floors in the Bible, by the way. It does. Why threshing floors are so important in the Bible, I'm not quite sure. But an awful lot happens. Um, so, they get to the threshing floor, and the oxen stumble. And, uh, and Uzzah stretches out his hand to give God a little bit of support. Yeah. Is that what he's doing? I don't know. Why does God judge Uzzah? So severely. So there's his name. By the way, everything begins with a U. I don't normally do this, but bizarrely it happened. So we, we played a little game on holiday. My wife was asking me as we were driving down to Cornwall. We'd just been away on holiday. She was going, so what are you going to talk on when you, you're back? So are you going to have to pray, pray while you're away? And I said, well, I, was, I got these ideas and everything came out with a, a, a U. So then we had an hour and a half of this journey in the car with my two sons and my wife trying to guess all of the words that I'd used in my sermon. They didn't get anything. Do you know how many words there are in the Bible, that, like in the English language, that start with you? I'd never thought of um, half of the things that they came out with and, and no umbrellas do not figure anywhere in this morning sermon. So Uzzah. Uzzah is the son of Abinadab, yeah? He's one of the sons of the guy who's hosted the ark for the last 20 years. He's, Abi, he's grown up in the household where the ark of the covenant of God, the manifest presence, essentially kind of God's throne on earth at this point in time, has been a sideboard somewhere in his dad's house. Yeah? I think there's some of that going on here. And I think Uzzah's treating it like he would any other bit of furniture and he's just moving the sideboard from one location to another location and he's not recognising or honouring God in this process particularly at all. He's just presuming, he's comfortable with the thing and God has to show him that actually he doesn't need any help. He's actually accused of being irreverent. Yeah? Not helpful not supportive, not, you know, accidental. He's actually, he's got no regard and no reverence for the presence of God on the ark. And that's why he gets judged. And it's really important for us to think about how we are around the presence of God. It's very easy for us to get comfortable with him. And actually, because of the access that we've been bought by Jesus, actually, sometimes maybe to treat God with a bit of a lackadaisical, well, it's all right, it's just God. He's always here, you know. And, and get a little bit careless sometimes, maybe, in the way that we deal with him and the way that we treat him, the way that we approach him. But he's a poor bloke, isn't he? That would be me. I'd be the guy that reached out my hand and propped it up automatically and then died as a consequence. But what do we know about this? So David becomes then afraid of this thing and asks, how on earth can this ever come to me? Now the word that is translated in the NIV as afraid does have the, contains that element of a sense of reverence. Yeah? It's an awe at the power and the presence of God that David asks the question, how could I ever cope with this? This is too big, too much for me. Can I encourage you there should always be an element of that in our approach to God and our worship of him. Who am I that the presence of God should actually ever come to me? Let alone that the Spirit of God dwells in me 
and lives in me. Who am I that my God, the one who created the universe, would actually come close? Right. So what do they do? They do the sensible thing that you always do when people are dying around the ark. You send it to somebody else. Volunteers for the presence of God, please put your hands up. I don't think Obadidam gets um, much of a look in. I think they just select him at random. Interesting, my understanding is, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but his name, so he's the servant of Edom. So, yeah, he's been consecrated now. He gets consecrated to look after this art, but he's a bit of a, the, the, the whole thing about his name, he, he's a servant guy. He's a bit of a nobody. He's just one of the dog's bodies looks after stuff kind of thing and yet the presence of God comes to him and all of a sudden him, his household, everybody associated with him is getting blessed because God's presence has come to him and God demonstrates that actually it doesn't matter who you are, what you think of yourself whether you are hugely um, thought of and regarded by other people or whether you're the lowest of the low whether you're just the ordinary guy who's just going about his business serving and doing what he can presence of God can come to you and unexpected things can happen and there's unexpected blessing wherever God's presence is isn't that right? there is unexpected blessing wherever God comes good stuff will happen wherever God is focused I'm not going to be too long with this. Let's do this. So let's think. So David hears about this. He gets this report. Obed-Edom's getting blessed. It's okay. Not everyone has to die around the ark. Yeah? The good news is this. Not everyone has to die around the ark. There must be a way that this thing can be accommodated, that God's presence can be embraced and enjoyed, and actually it brings blessing, not destruction. There is a way of doing it if you do it right. And I think maybe Obed-Eden welcomed the ark into his home with a sense of reverence and respect and he served well. And maybe that's why he got the blessing where others didn't. So then they, they go up and they go, it's great, okay, we can do this. Oh, I'll tell you what we should have done in the first place. We should have asked God how he wants this thing to be dealt with, how he wants it to be carried. How do we deal with the presence of God in our midst? And they go back and they look into the appropriate way to carry it and they consecrate the priests and they pick it up on the poles that it was designed to be carried on and they do it the right way. Yeah, They do it the right way. And God wants us to think about the right ways and the appropriate ways of worshipping him. And then David dances before the Lord with all of his might. I really wanted to show you the Richard Gere clip. Have you ever seen that? Of David dancing before the Ark of the Lord because we've got it somewhere to Abba's Dancing Queen music, which if you've never seen it, it just has to be done because the music and the video uh, together are just the perfect combination, but I didn't have time this morning. So David dances before the Lord with all of his might. He's stripped off down to his loincloth and he's going all out. Yeah? And he's making a complete idiot of himself in front of all of the people 
and in front of his wife and his household. And he doesn't care at all. He doesn't care at all. He's completely unconcerned with what she thinks of him. That says I'm concerned if you can't read it. So Michael looks at him and she despises him in her heart. The Bible has a great way of putting things sometimes. It's like she doesn't just go, what a twit. Yeah? Yes. He did look a wally, David. You know, There's something deep going on inside of Michael where she can look at somebody else, giving it all for God, and in her heart, that is a horrible thing. It's a detestable thing. She wants to be, she's the daughter of a king, married to a king. All of the pomp and circumstance and, and that the come with that, she's this wonderful figure in, uh, like in, in the whole of the nation's life, really, married to David, king of Israel, and then her husband's making a twit of himself. And I think it shows how much she thinks about herself rather than how much she thinks about her husband, that she despises his attitude, because it makes her look less. Yeah? It makes her look less as well, and she's worried about what he looks like, because that reflects on her and what she looks like. And if, he, if the slave girl starts to despise David, then what chance has she got of anybody's respect? And all of this kind of thing. And she gets magnificently judged for this. There are two possibilities either here. Either God makes her barren for that attitude of heart, or David just stops having sex with her for the rest of her life. And those two things are distinct possibilities, and both of them are entirely, conceivably true. Because actually, where our hearts are hard towards one another and towards God, nothing good ever grows. Yeah? If we have a hard heart towards those closest, if we allow that, um, that despising of each other to enter into our hearts, our relationships sour and they wither and they die. Yeah? Once we lose respect for one another and appreciation of one another, and in the people of God and the family of God, I think this is really important, we need to constantly remind ourselves that actually in you and in me, the Spirit of God, the presence of God lives. We shouldn't be despising one another for the way that we behave or our actions or our exuberances and that kind of thing. Because once we start to do that, nothing good is ever going to grow and develop. And actually, we run the risk of the fact that God will remove his blessing from us if we have a hard heart towards him. I found it interesting this morning because the kids' song that we did, you could probably tell this of me. I never heard that before we came to rehearse this morning before the service. So I was very much making that up as I went along. My apologies. Um, but what's your attitude to that kind of thing? Because, you know, I, I find lots of people who really struggle with entering into all-age-friendly worship and action songs and 
participating in that way because somehow that feels a little bit less than proper worship. Yeah. Sometimes that's hard. And sometimes when you ask me to jump up and down and spin right round and praise his name forever, I just feel like an utter and complete wally. And I don't want to do it because I'm the king. <laughs> because I'm the grown-up. Because I'm better than that. And I desire to keep my dignity intact. But you know, every time you want to keep your dignity intact and for the sake of God and his people, especially the younger ones amongst us, you choose to embrace the ridiculous as an act of worship. It really becomes an offering to God. David also famously said, I will not offer to my God that that costs me nothing. I will not offer to my God that that costs me nothing. Every time you don't want to participate in an act of worship because your pride's getting in the way, you have a choice to make. You can either hang on to your pride yeah, and your self-respect and your dignity or you can say Actually, Lord, you're worth this, and I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. I'm going to give this up for you. And I'm prepared to look an idiot for you. Because we need to participate in worship that is cross-generational and embraces our children. And that kind of thing as well. So, next time you really feel embarrassed about something you're asked to do by one of the worship leaders here, do it as an act of worship to God. God will honour it and pour out blessing on you for doing it. I could give you a list of times in my own life where I've gone, really? And then I've done it and I've discovered just how pleased God was with what I did. Right, I'm just going to run through this really quickly because David brings the ark back and then shoves it in a tent um, uh, on the outskirts of Jerusalem and all kinds of things are going on. Yeah? Things that have never happened before and things that nod to what's going to come when Jesus comes along later. Because who normally minister before the Ark of the Lord? Priests. Priests and Levites. They were the people that were allowed to minister before they... Um, in the tabernacle that Moses created, um, there were priests and Levites and the high priest got once a year to go into the Holy of Holies right before the Ark and um, as long as he'd done everything properly, he didn't get slayed uh, by the presence of God, and, um, uh, and everything was good for the next year. David shoves it in a tent. It's probably a very big tent, because there were quite a lot of people in it, but he just shoves it in a tent on the side of Jerusalem. And he has got some priests and Levites and things about, but he's also got some singers. He's got some musicians. Uh, he's got those that are appointed to prophesy, He's got those that are appointed to record the prophecies that come out and the new songs that are written and the spontaneous things that happen. He's got people who are appointed to shout and to celebrate and he commands everybody to continuously, in rotation, so it happens 24-7, seven days, well, I don't know, did they do it on the Sabbath? Probably. They're celebrating before God continuously with total open access 
before the presence of God, and we're told that amazing things happen. Lots of the Psalms appear to have been written during this period of time as well. And people had unrestricted access to come into the presence of God and to celebrate before him in all of these kind of ways, new ways, different ways. Interestingly, and I stand to be corrected on this, but I think opinion is divided actually whether the mosaic tent, the mosaic tabernacle, and David's tabernacle are actually both still set up at the same time. Because as far as we know, Moses' tabernacle was still up on Shiloh, and everything that normally happened was still happening there. All of the normal sacrifices and offerings are still happening in the tabernacle of Shiloh. Where would you prefer to be? You can be in Moses' tabernacle, where you're slitting the throats of blood uh, and pouring the blood out of, of bulls and goats and splashing it around the place and, and coming home. Can you imagine a priest coming home after a day off back to his wife and he's there and he's plastered in blood? and sweat, and animal fat, and all of the other kinds of things that are part of his normal duties, and that kind of thing. Lisa, did you just suggest that your husband normally comes back in that kind of state? So, Or would you prefer to be, oh, by the way, there's no presence of God in Moses' tabernacle anymore. All the ritual, all the activity is still going on, but God isn't there anymore. Not in the way that he was when the ark was there. There's no imminent presence of God because the ark's moved. Or would you prefer to be in David's tent where they're singing and writing new songs and the musicians are playing skillfully and loudly and people are prophesying and people are recording those prophecies and there's whole enjoyment of being in the presence of God. Um, Where would you rather be? David's tent. I'd rather be in David's tent any day of the week. And actually, for all of the criticism sometimes about, about our embrace of uh, contemporary worship, radical worship, doing crazy things, singing in tongues, and all of that kind of stuff that goes on, the happy, clappy brigade that happens sometimes when we're celebrating in God's presence, we can do that because God is present amongst us, and that's what he's doing. At the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, James uses um, Amos 9 to explain what is happening amongst the Gentiles. To explain how God no longer requires us to approach him with ritual and formality, but wants us to embrace him in this kind of way. Do you know what I'm talking about? So he said... He quotes Amos 9 and he says, this is what the prophet said about in those days I will restore David's fallen tent. This tent, not the temple, not Moses' tent, this is David's tent, the place where there is open access to the presence of God and people can come in and celebrate his goodness and live in his blessing because of what Jesus has done. That's where we live. This was a snapshot in time of what was to come. But God has always wanted a relationship based on faith and grace. He did it with Abraham when he called him in the first place. 
Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And God called people to his presence on the basis of faith and grace. And actually now, through Jesus, all the other stuff that went on in Moses' tabernacle is made redundant, irrelevant, because we have access directly to the presence of God again and the Spirit of God who comes and dwells in each of us. But let's forgive my ramblings. But just a few thoughts. Let's think about making sure that when we approach God and we dwell in his presence, we're not unprepared and we don't treat him as if we can live the way that the world does and not seek him out for how he wants to be served and dealt with. Let's make sure that we're not like Uzzah, who gets so used to God being about that we almost don't notice that he's there. Let's expect the unexpected in terms of God's blessing and his presence. And let's be prepared to be those that make ourselves look like complete wallies for the sake of honestly worshipping God. Let's be unconcerned about what anybody else thinks and celebrate the unrestricted access we have to God through Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that you have made a way where there seemed to be no way. Thank you, Lord, that at the moment of Jesus' death, that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the other courts in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying our open access to you. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your spirit the location of your presence within the persons of your people. Lord God, help us never to take you for granted, but to embrace and to welcome you in all of the time. Lord, forgive us where we get so busy with our ordinary lives, and even in our church lives, Lord God, where we get so used to going through the motions and the ritual that we forget to prepare ourselves and to focus on your presence. And Lord, help us to lay down our pride and our own sense of um, uh, dignity, Lord God, for the sake of abandoning ourselves in our worship of you. Lord, particularly remembering how important little ones are to you. Lord, help us to um, celebrate and to worship with them and engage with them in ways that may make us look like foolish children. But Lord God, enable us to celebrate you in the truth of all that you are. Lord, we worship you and we honour you. We give you our praise. Help us to do as you would have us do and to abandon ourselves to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.